from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a Next Round Fine Pair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these conversations in between our regular podcast episodes in order to focus on the issues and stories in the drinks world. Today, I'm speaking with James Beard Award-winning sommelier and the creator of Virtual Boozy Brunch, Belinda Chang. Belinda, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me virtually, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Still the way we do pretty much everything these days uh, for, for now. So so let's start before we get into Virtual Boozy Brunch, where I want to kind of spend a fair bit of our time today. Um, talk a little bit about your, your past, your trajectory, your career as a sommelier uh, before COVID-19 changed everything. Sure. Like many of us, I started in university. I was a graduate of Rice University in Houston, Texas, who majored in biochemistry and economics. And if you ask my parents, they would probably say it all went wrong when I started dating (laughs) the lead singer of the ska band. I mean, they were a pretty good ska band, right? They opened up for the Mighty Mighty Boss Tone. So this was college, right? Like it was a college band, but they were pretty darn good. And the lead singer of the ska band who I was dating, he was a senior, I was a freshman, had the whole down low on how to be really well fed and drink wine while being a college student and on a typical college student budget. And that was to work at the university faculty club, which is called Cohen House. And so that was my first job ever. Of course, I followed along and got myself a job at the Rice University Faculty Club. And I ended up being the head waiter there because I think I was just really having so much fun. So what that looked like was during my lunch hours, I was carving brisket, you know, that that brisket in Houston, so delicious and ladling out bowls of the incredible gumbo and shrimp etouffee that they had on the buffet line for all of my professors. And then in the evenings, we had a small team that did these synchronized service kind of fine dining events for the president of the university and a lot of the illustrious alumni, like the Baker family, people like that, politicians. And that was my first experience with fine dining and great wine. Well, the great wine at the time, I think, was Magnums of Macon Village, right? But it was a great... <laughs> but, you know, Seems it's great. A, it's a, right. I mean, it was a private institution. To me, that was slightly nicer than they were serving at some of the other faculty clubs. But that's how I got into this whole thing and fell in love with wine and fell in love with hospitality and fell in love with it all and decided to abandon the path that I'd been set on to, you know, maybe become something respectable, like a doctor, a lawyer, management consultant. (laughs) So while I was there, I then after I fell in love with the lead singer of the ska band, who knew a lot about how to get free food and wine, I then fell in love with the sous chef of the top restaurant in Houston, which at the time was a restaurant called Cafe Annie owned and operated by a PhD uh, in biochemistry who became a chef. His name's Robert Del Grande, won all the James Beard Awards and was a huge wine lover and lover of rabbit enchiladas and mole. So that was kind of interesting. But, you know, they ended up with a a Wine Spectator award-winning program and it was a beautiful place where I believe that we had the most interesting clientele you could have at the time, you know, like Colombian drug runners and and people like that that are in Houston. (laughs) So there was a lot of Chateau Mouton, you know, 82 and Magnums of Dom Perignon all over the place. So that was a really fun place to get my start in, you know, restaurants proper. So I started in the kitchen 
there. I knocked on their back door one day and ended up being hired on as a stage first and then as a banquet line chef. So I know a lot about making wild mushroom quesadillas really quickly and on moss and also doing that. Remember that sort of like 90s zigzag from the sweet bottle? Uh (laughs) Right, right. The crema fresca over the mole topped enchiladas and, and all kinds of beautiful southwestern food and that's where i got my first subscription to the wine spectator started reading about wine started guzzling that newton chardonnay unfiltered i guess texas is the biggest buyer of that wine and there started my wine education that set me in that direction <laughs> and then a lot of things happened after that i don't know if we want to go into them but you know well i just was going to say maybe <laughs> obviously you've had a, a a kind of a a remarkable and illustrious career and and can feel free to recount more of it but i'm just wondering you know <laughs> Is there any, are there any other sort of, obviously there, for all of us, there are the sort of initial formative restaurant experiences that sure. that you say, you know, this is where I kind of learned the ropes. Um, but, but along the way for you as well, were there any other stops that you, you particularly feel like recounting or if not, we yeah. can certainly move on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think the the early stops are kind of, to me, the most interesting because they really, um, I don't know, I, you know, the formative ones, right? So so I, I had a great time at Cafe Annie. I loved working with the husband and wife team. And I, I, I'm grateful that I started on the culinary side to have a good grounding in how a fancy kitchen works and all of that, which made it easier for me to adapt moving forward. So while I was at Cafe Annie, and maybe this is also a little bit about sort of my career strategy from the beginning. You know, I went to Cafe Annie because a friend of mine told me it was the best restaurant. So if you're going to learn something about cooking in restaurants, go there. And then while I was at Cafe Annie, I saw a cover of the Wine Spectator that said that Charlie Trotter's in Chicago is the best restaurant in the world for a food and drink experience. And I thought, oh, well, you know, of course, I was like, oh, I should just go work there next. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. That is some that is some uh, that is some self-confidence. Right. So, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it. You know, it's like how you might think to yourself, like, oh, you're like, yeah, I'll just go to Harvard. That's what I'm going to do. And so sure. I <laughs> I faxed my resume in, you know, went to Kinko's before it was FedEx Kinko's. I remember driving there, sending in a resume that I'd sort of cobbled together. And lo and behold, by the time I got back on my answer machine that used a regular cassette tape, was a message from Chef Trotter himself. So, um, you know, so that that was the next thing I did. I packed up everything. And I think within a week, I just hustled myself out to Chicago and started working there. And there, he starts you wherever he wants to start you. And even though I was so proud of myself at that point at Cafe Annie, I was the only woman working as a captain in the dining room, which, you know, as you know, and fine dining is kind of like the top of the heap. I went to Charlie Trotter's and I was food runner. <laughs> so, you know, five years there and I ended my time as the wine director of that very venerable cellar and, you know, learned everything you could possibly learn uh, about a restaurant, operating a restaurant in the way that he did and many other lessons. So, I mean, I think that's the stop that really um, set me on this kind of path forever and also informed a lot of what I believe in in hospitality and how to deliver experiences and how to work 
and how to mentor and lots of other things. So, so I did that. So I went from Houston back home to Chicago, which is my parents have lived here and I lived here from third grade on. So this was my hometown. And, you know, after a couple of years at Charlie Trotters, I got a call that a chef named Laurent Gras was looking for a wine director and a replacement for Rajat Parr in San Francisco. So, uh, I think we've, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, right. So <laughs> I was like, oh my God, who doesn't want to be the follow-up to Rajat Parr in that incredible celery stocked with floor to ceiling, Domaine de la Rone, Conti, and Jaye and Costery, um, you know, that was a giant seller of Burgundy, I think probably the largest in the country, if not the deepest in the country, just at that moment in time. And so I, um, you know, flew myself out to San Francisco with the, sort of the same thought, like, of course, I'm the one to replace Rajon Bar. <laughs> and that the chef, I think I was probably the 60th person he'd interview, the very last person who put their hat in the ring for it. And there's kind of a nice moment here where I took the elevator up to the fifth floor, right? The fifth floor in San Francisco was on the fifth floor. And mm -hmm. I saw Martine Sonnier sitting outside and she was on a cell phone and it wasn't an iPhone. It was like, you know, one of those big ones, I think, or maybe a Motorola flip phone. And she kind of looked up and we didn't know each other well, but I'd met her a few times and she said, oh, Belinda Chang. She said, are you here to interview? And I said, yes. And she nodded and I went into the interview. I found out later that she called Chef Gras after and said, hire her. Oh, wow. So that, yeah. So that was kind of a really cool moment. And I didn't know about this for many years. And I can tell you, I love him deeply. I think he's so amazing. And I treasure my years that I worked with him. But I do know that when I walked into the room, he was definitely like, but you're a girl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? You know? But, you know, but he comes from very classic dining rooms, working with Alain Ducasse. And I'm sure in the years he worked with Alain Ducasse, there definitely was not a woman sommelier on any of those service teams. I in think Paris. that is a and, safe assumption. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty cool that she, you know, got in the game and told him what to do. <laughs> and he followed her advice. Yes. <laughs> I think yeah. that, that that time that was the job that, you know, a lot of people wanted. <laughs> I bet. Well, yeah, sixty something people applied. I, I bet so. So, yeah. so before we before we talk uh, shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, virtual boozy brunch and, and what you've yeah. been doing lately, what was the what, what was sort of the last the uh, you know sommelier wine director job you held um, and and kind of was it a you know di was your sort of stepping away from the floor just a thing that its time had come or, or kind of how did you make that decision? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we can fast forward to it. So, you know, from the fifth floor in San Francisco, I came back to Chicago to oversee a big group of restaurants for Richard Melman from Let Us Entertain You. From there, I was recruited by Danny Meyer's team to take over the wine director position at The Modern in MoMA in Manhattan. And then after that, after winning the James Beard Award with my team, I then went into a couple of experiments. I worked with Graydon Carter and Ken Friedman at the Monkey Bar. And then I kind of went into sort of that corporate paradigm that a lot of people think that they want to go into after single owner operator or small group restaurant paradigms. And I spent some time as the corporate wine director at Starwood Culinary Concepts, which was a okay. part of Starwood Hotels and Restaurants run by John George. And then after that, I spent time as the first national champagne educator for yeah. LVMH, for MHUSA. Okay 
So, um, so those are all the various things. And then after all of that, <laughs> I decided it was time to get back onto the floor. So I took a managing partner and wine director position here back in Chicago, my hometown with Maple and Ash. So that was the last time that I was on the floor. And that was a two and a half year stint that launched me into my own business. <laughs> gotcha. And so let's, let's talk about that. So, so what was the, what were you doing, um, you know, sort of broad strokes pre pre pandemic? Um, and how, how did you sort of pivot into virtual events? Pre pandemic. So pre pandemic, I was about a year and a half into my first foray into single owner operated bootstrap entrepreneurship. I mean, terrifying in and of itself, but you know, Pre-pandemic, I was um, I had some great clients. I was working with Cobrand and Champagne Tatanger and Calvitius Caviar, and I was already then doing something that's not easily explained. I guess if you had to give it a one-liner, it was luxury experiential marketing. Okay. <laughs> the funny thing is, I actually did do some virtual Champagne 101 and food and wine pairing classes via Skype for editors at Severe okay. Magazine and um, L Magazine before this all happened. But, but um, aside from that, you know, I was putting on really cool experiences like an annual pool party in Aspen and my sixth year running James Beard Awards pre-prom, which put together a glam salon for all the women nominees and women winners to get them red carpet ready. So things like that. So definitely in the luxury space, definitely in the experiential marketing space. Um, so when we got to that fateful March, which I mean, it feels like it was 10 years ago, but I guess it was just <laughs> yeah. a few months ago. It was the first year of the business where I felt like it was all going to be okay. I had all of my 2020 Q1, Q2, and Q3 like lined up, deposits put down. And it was in one day, I was in Toronto on a business trip when I got all the calls. I got, you know, four of them in a row, which I thought was really weird from different clients. And they were all calling me to refund deposits. So I emptied, like literally emptied, maybe to the last five cents, you know, my operating cash account. And of course, refunded all these clients because I want to work with them again later. And, um, you know, sat and cried on my couch. I have this red velvet couch. So you Ugh. can picture me just like, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that led to virtual boozy brunch a couple of days later. <laughs> yeah. So, so can you again? It's it's having attended a couple of them. It's, I don't know that I could uh, fairly ask you to summarize it in a couple of sentences. <laughs> but but just for the people who are listening who aren't familiar, and, and we'll certainly yeah. include links in the uh, show description. What, what is virtual boozy brunch, and 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 has it? How has it maybe evolved since uh, you know the early days of the pandemic? So it's how I got off the couch. So I got off the couch a day later and I saw Jackie and Danny's virtual happy hour. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but they were really, I think, the first to really put on this big effort where they were inviting three bartenders a night for two showings a night and recreated a bar scenario where friends and supporters could come in and virtual tip these bartenders from all over the country. And they also gave an opportunity for the liquor brands to come in and help out and sort of sponsor all these bartenders that needed help, right? They're all furloughed, they're laid off, what are they going to do? So I thought, you know, I should try to do something for the wine people. I feel like 
that never happens because they all think that, you know, we're landed gentry or something. And it might be because, <laughs> right, you know, we all have the friends who are such natty dressers, the wine directors and sommeliers with their quadruple Windsors that I think it's pretty unusual or until now, you know, pretty rare that there was a dedicated effort to help them. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. who needs help? They look like they're doing just fine. But, you know, just because we are sipping and swirling Jaya and Kosturi doesn't mean that we bought it ourselves. It's just, it's a part of our job. So I thought, well, what could I do that could be something similar to this virtual happy hour scenario that really helps wine people? So, you know, I called Carrie Levins, who's a protege of mine. I called uh, a friend, Rachel, who was at Osteria Mosa at the time. And I said, you know what, let's put together like a Sunday brunch where you can come and chat about wine. You can invite all of your collectors and your fans and your friends and your supporters. And, you know, they can tip you for sharing your magic. And we're going to find a way to do that virtually on camera so that you can still sort of ply your trade, right? Which is mm -hmm. making people feel great and helping them to drink good wine. So that was what episode one, two, and three were about having great wine people and giving them a place to connect with their supporters and fans and try to make some money and do it, you know, without having to ask for a handout. And what we realized was that a lot of our chef friends were coming and tuning in and a lot of other people with interesting stories and magic to share were tuning in. So it evolved after a few weeks into this, sip along, cook along, bake along, dance along, and many other things along experience. So it evolved really quickly from being like a virtual wine class into being kind of like, I don't know, it's a living magazine, it's a living virtual experience. It's, it's a lot of things right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I will say just, uh, you know, from, from my own experience uh, attending a few of them, one thing that I think is really kind of fun about it is, is it feels, it's sort of like going inside the cooking segment of like something like Good Morning America, but right. like, but very much, but not, but not sort of, well, this is going to this isn't a negative thing, but not kind of polished within an inch of its life the way those things are, you know, like, right. Mistakes happen. Swear words definitely happen. You know, people are <laughs> drinking, and so it and so it has. But it, but it is. I think you guys do an amazing job of making it. You know, you if you want to learn how to do something, you really can. And I think that was the next question I was going to ask. Is I think one of the hardest things um, about the virtual format, in my experience, especially as it relates to things like cooking you know, cocktail creation, even, even a little more static things, like even just wine tasting is, is it's, I find it's very hard to communicate and to receive uh, that kind of uh, training when you're distanced from someone, when you're, when you're watching them through a screen. But I think you guys do a really good job of, of making all of the recipes, all of the, you know, cocktail uh, recipes really comprehensible. So how do you, how have you done that? Well, I mean, I think we, from the start, we're thinking about why someone would tune in and how we could keep a great audience and, you know, make this endeavor worth our time and engage people all the way through. I mean, I don't know about you, but especially as I got later into my career, I was like, Ugh, the, the formal wine tasting, I just think is the most boring thing. And I was always trying to find ways to make it a little more interesting. And, you know, in that landscape of back in the day when you and I were full-time wine directors on the floor, you get like 50 invitations, you know, per day. So it's like, how do you choose which one's going to be really great aside from like 
maybe going to the one that has the most expensive wine. I think in this virtual space, the ones that are really interesting to me are the ones where I get to really participate, right? So we never have a moderator read off the questions from the chat and relay that to the chef. We flip you up on screen if you have a question about did I do this correctly or does this look right or is it brown enough? So our audience is always invited to be a part of the experience in every way. I always tell our team if at some point you're looking at the gallery of viewers and they're all looking down and they're texting or they're looking at their phones instead of what's happening, then you know we've done something wrong. We want it such that everybody who's in the audience is engaging with the talent the entire time. So it's a really worthwhile endeavor, you know, whether the talent wants to tell a brand story or, you know, share a recipe or technique or just connect. We make it so that it's a platform uh, in which they can always do that at the highest level. So I think, you know, that's what we've learned how to do throughout the pandemic. And I think that's what we're doing best, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I definitely can tell, you know, the, the participant and, and viewer uh, engagement is high. Uh, which Thank is always, you. as you said, very challenging to to do both in person, frankly, and also virtually. So, yeah. you know, I think the last kind of thing I want to ask you about, at least, uh, you know, at the moment is we are hopefully knocking on every piece of wood in my house <laughs> at a point in time where it feels like the end of the pandemic might be closer than the beginning. And yeah. obviously, none of us know what that process period is going to look like. It's going to be uneven. Some people are going to be you know, vaccinated and feel comfortable going out in the world. Some people might not even after being vaccinated, it's going to take time, etc. But obviously, like anyone who's created something in this period of time, you know, you have some thoughts about how to carry it forward into a sort of post COVID landscape. And, and you know, don't feel like you got to share any trade secrets here. But, <laughs> but what have you been thinking about in terms of in terms of continuing virtual boozy brunch once the maybe virtual part is no longer mandatory? It's such a smart question, Zach. And also, you know, to your point about not sharing any trade secrets, I'm very proud of the fact that I think that our virtual boozy brunch format, which started in March, March 16th, has inspired tons of people to do their own take on it. So all my trade secrets are non-secrets. I always want <laughs> to share. I love, I love sharing best practices and what I've learned. But to your question, I absolutely think that this is an idea whose time has come, not just because of the pandemic, but because it's a smart way forward just because it's smart. I think particularly for marketing and this this striving for experiential marketing and authenticity and storytelling. I mean, this is so amazing. I'm going to be attending virtual experiences, I think, for the rest of my life because, listen, it's expensive wine travel, right? Like, remember yeah. when we would get offered, you know, the trip to Germany, but you could only send one person from the restaurant or, you know, they were only inviting 10 wine directors from around the world. Like you can put together this programming that is so powerful if you do it well and, you know, hire a good production team uh, where it feels just like you're in Luca Corrado from Vietti's, you know, mom's kitchen smelling the blueberry risotto because they've sent you all the ingredients and you can be stirring that pot with them from home and you can visit the vineyards and you can invite as many people as you want from all over the world. So I think that this is some cool stuff. I always use the analogy, you know, those movies that are futuristic movies where they're having the board meeting and all the people on the board are holograms. And they're all sipping the same scotch together. I mean, whenever <laughs> I saw a movie vignette like that, I always thought like, 
oh, how could we do that, you know, in the wine and food space? And we're doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think that this is going to go on forever and people are going to get better and better at it and send bigger experience boxes and, you know, and really make this so it does feel just like you're in the room, but you're in the room so safely. And you can be in any room anywhere in the world with just the click of a button and the opening of a laptop. So I think it's so cool. I'm all about it. And I am all in, Um, you know, and I don't know when I'm going to want to go to like, are people going to still do Vanetoli? I, I don't know. I did the virtual version of it this year, and it was really fun. So. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, just, just my two cents on this whole thing, um, I think two two things are seem pretty true to me. One is that that uh, virtual experiences and in-person experiences are not mutually exclusive and people are going to want some of each. They're going to want the experience of whether it's getting on a plane and going to Europe, some of them, or the experience of, you know, just going out to dinner or, you know, having someone serve them. All those things are, are going to still be, you know, you know, popular with people. But I think what we've learned, as you said, is that you can do an amazing job of creating a a really memorable experience that is way less, you know, I think the fear heading into this or before the pandemic was people were going to see a virtual experience as at best a pale imitation of an in-person experience. And I think what we've learned is they're not exactly the same thing. And there are things that a virtual experience can deliver that an in-person experience can't, including like the fact that you can do it in your house with your pajamas on. And like, (laughs) that is, as it turns out for a lot of us, a a thing that we like. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Very much. I also... I also think the other piece of this is that, and I wonder, you know, this is my own thing too, is, you know, I I even know in my own career that when you're, you know, there are, uh, you know, you said that sort of in-person wine tastings had gotten old to you, and and I largely agree that there becomes a time for everyone, especially professionals, but even, but even I think for amateurs uh, or, you know, sort of just um, hobbyists and enthusiasts that, you know, having access to all the wine is less important than having good wine. And yeah. I think about some of the like consumer facing events I've been to, um, you know, big, big events in the States. And it's like, you know, are, is there going to be the same demand? Maybe there will still be the same demand for the drunken shit show that is, you know, these big you know, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of producers pouring drink as much as you want events. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there are always going to be people who want to get drunk for sure. Yeah, but I think sure. that the smarter positioning for a lot of people is going to be, you know, uh, for if you're a winery or a, or a spirits brand or whatever, you know, do you really want to go be lost in that sea of, you know, drunken red wine, you know, sloshing, or do you want to do focused events for people around the country who are your actual potential customers. And I think that's where you're going to see a lot of that shifting is people's marketing budgets are going to say like, you know what, we've been able to really reach our audience directly as opposed to hoping that someone not too inebriated comes by our booth, likes our wine, and then remembers to order it, you know, five days yeah. later. I, I think that, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Remembers yeah. anything that happened, of course. <laughs> Agreed. No, 100%. You know, I think we're at a really interesting moment for those of us that engage in sort of the storytelling, marketing, activation side of things. Um, I think we are now going to see some permanent changes and, and things for how we move forward, even when it is possible for us to all be safely together in the same space again. Absolutely. Well, Belinda, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, it's been 
super cool to watch you, you know, kind of experiment and explore this virtual space. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what comes in the months and, and years ahead. Thank you so much, Zach. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Lewinsky. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.